The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Have you seen the dairy at 117 Balmoral Road in Auckland? If you're close to a Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever it is, you can have a look at what it looks like. Google 117 Balmoral Road. It is a dairy, one of those old suburban dairies that's often a converted house with a, a big uh, overhanging uh, a roof and um, someone's put up the uh, frontage so that it looks like a dairy. In this case, it's been abandoned a few years ago. It's got the roller doors. It's painted bright red. Obviously, uh, the tip-top people managed to get hold of it and sponsor it at some point. And right outside this decrepit old dairy on Balmoral Road is the most desperate grey couch, which um, Google Maps took a picture of one day. It is the most awful-looking dairy. It's the sort of thing you, you look at and go, boy, that's dragging down the values of all the houses around here. Someone needs to bowl that and put something useful there. Well, exactly. That's what people wanted to do. They wanted to bowl the dairy called the Henley Road Supreme at 117 Balmoral Road. And no doubt, a developer thought, right, I'll get my hands on that land. I'll buy it. It's right on the main Balmoral Road. There's a bus route. I'll be able to put up some townhouses, maybe a little apartment. I'll be able to put, I don't know, 14, 16 dwellings in there, one, two-bedroom departments, no parking, but a place for someone to live that's warm and dry and close to a bus route and quite close to the CBD. Balmoral Road, of course, we're talking Mount Eden, Mount Albert, um, perfect place to densify Auckland. So... Along we go in the process of getting ourselves a resource consent because when you change the underlying nature of what is on a chunk of land inside Auckland, particularly one of these established suburbs like Mount Eden, you need a resource consent under our Resource Management Act. And when you do that, you basically have to notify all the people around you and say, do you mind if I put up an apartment building next to your house? And surprise, surprise, everyone says, desperately, no, don't do it. And then if you're clever and got some money, you get together and, and take some lawyers and, and contest it through the whole council process and also take it to the Environment Court. And before you know it, you know, six years have gone and the developer's gone bust. And the old grey tattered 
sofa outside the red dairy is still there, getting more and more tattered. And the red frontage of the dairy is starting to look a bit mouldy because no one's been looking after it. And it's still there and nothing's happened and no one's living in that, that red building. And in fact, when the developers proposed to the council, and remember, councils are supposed to encourage people to build new houses. Auckland has a particular problem. We don't have enough housing. There's incredibly fast migration. And the council should be encouraging people to put more of these higher density. We're not talking 20-story high buildings. We're talking three, four-story, walk-up, medium density in these places along the main bus routes. You know, this is not a cul-de-sac a long way from nowhere. This is right on Balmoral Road. But the council official who was assigned to look into this looked at this dairy, the Henley Road Supret, with the roller doors and said, that is a character building. That is part of the history of Balmoral Road. That needs protecting. Now, why on earth would someone want to protect the Henley Road Supret with its red roller doors and its grey tatty couch? Because, and here's the guts of it, Councils over the years have worked out that every time they say yes to someone densifying or building a new suburb, the council has to spend a lot of money on infrastructure. Someone has to dig up a road. Someone has to put in a brand new pipe, particularly the ones on the edge of town, the ones they call green fields. That means you have to lengthen the motorway. You have to build a new school. You have to build a new hospital. You have to put footpaths. You have to put in fields. You have to spend a lot of money as a council. And every time you plonk down $100 million, $300 million, that's money you either have to borrow or you have to increase rates. And Surprise, surprise, a lot of ratepayers don't like rates increases and they don't like debt increases either because, in theory, that makes it slightly more expensive for the council to borrow. And as it turns out, because the way councils borrow at the moment, they borrow through a central government agency, the central government also doesn't want them to borrow too much because they worry that if councils borrow too much, that will damage the government's credit rating. So councils don't want development because it costs too much in infrastructure. So they've found ways over the years to say no for people to have to talk to the hand, to say, we would like to build 14 homes on that piece of land that has the tatty old soupret, and council will go, oh, no, that's a character building. And the reason they do that is so they then don't have to tear up the footpath and put in the pipes and put down the orange cones, which Wayne Brown hates so much. So how do we change this? How do we get lots of new densified homes next to the main route so that we're not belching too many tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and so that we have proper homes that people are living? Because remember, in New Zealand right now, there are 24,000 people on a waiting list to get into a house. They are essentially homeless. They are stressed. They are bouncing from one private rental to the next or the back of a car or a something like a loafer's lodge. It's awful. It means that we now have more than 600,000 people who are in debt to MSD and IRD because they've had to borrow money for a place to live or food to eat. We have more than 400,000 people in New Zealand who have to get an accommodation allowance from the government, a subsidy from the government to be able to afford a place to live. We have more than 450,000 people who every month have to 
get a food parcel because they haven't got enough money to afford food. And it's all about housing, not having affordable, clean, dry housing. That means we have a healthy population and we're going to try to reduce our emissions into the atmosphere. It's the core task of our society, keeping people safe and warm and dry in the middle of the night when it's raining so that they don't get sick and they can live somewhere they can go and do some work and go to church or uh, their kids can go to school. That's the core of it. That's what society's supposed to do. Yet we've organised ourselves so that decrepit old 117 Balmoral Road can't be turned into the houses that it needs to be. So how do we change this? Well, we, we've known about this problem for a long time, and there was a chink of light that turned up in the middle of 2021. You might, regular listeners to Win the Facts Change will remember I did an interview with Nicola Willis about a new bipartisan plan called, I, I labelled it, Townhouse Nation. It was a, a Labour and National thing where they got together and they essentially declared a truce. We won't attack you if you go for this, and you won't attack me if we go for this. We'll get it through, even though there'll be some blowback. And so the idea was that section, like the one with the ugly red suprette, people would be able to essentially develop three three-storey townhouses on that suburban section and not have to get the resource consent. So the locals would not be able to slow it down for seven years and stop it. The council wouldn't be able to say, oh, that's a character suprant. <laughs> and you would actually see some houses built. And it was this moment when actually, oh, the politicians are doing the right thing. Now, I still think there were some problems with that. The councils would often find other reasons to say no, because in essence, they didn't have the ability to borrow to pay for the infrastructure for it, even for the brownfields infrastructure, which is cheaper than the greenfield stuff. So there we have it, the bipartisan, it's called the MDRS. We all love a good acronym, Medium Density Residential Standards. And you might have heard of this meeting that happened last week in Birkenhead, at the Birkenhead Bowling Club. It was lunchtime. I mean, who has time to go to a political meeting at lunchtime? apart from retired people in suburban areas. And Christopher Luxon was there talking about what National would do. He was getting a lot of pushback from a bunch of these grey-haired people saying, you know, we don't like change, we don't want bilingual street signs, you can imagine. But one of the questions was, aren't you going to get rid of this MDRS stuff? We don't want other people living in rabbit hutches next to us stealing our sunlight. Why did National betray us and do a bipartisan deal with Labour to actually try to densify our suburbs? I love the suburb. It's a beautiful, leafy suburb. I can drive to work. It only takes me five minutes. I paid a lot of money to have a nice, quiet life close to the centre of town. Why are you changing this? National is supposed to be the Conservative Party that stops things from changing. Well, Christopher Luxon initially defended MDRS when he was first elected leader. But in that moment last week, he was asked a direct question. What are you going to do about MDRS? And he came out with, well, actually, we think MDRS is wrong. In the process, I think, he threw Chris Bishop, his housing spokesman, and Nicola Willis, his deputy leader, under the bus. For the last two years, they have been fighting for MDRS, taking the heat from all of the grey-haired National Party members who hate MDRS with a passion. And now, after two years of pain, they were having to give it up. 
So this week we saw Christopher Luxon announce that uh, National would allow councils to opt out of MDRS and that they would prefer development on the fringes. And this week's When the Facts Change, I interview Chris Bishop about this new MDRS light policy for National, which I think is one way to address the issue because we need houses, whether it's densified houses close to the centre on the outside there are some climate change issues with that and obviously heavy infrastructure costs. National's approach is to bring in private capital to fund the infrastructure. I challenge Chris on that in the interview. And my current view is that this watered-down version of MDRS will be just as ineffective as the previous policies delivered. And it's a problem because right now we have population growth of over 100,000 per year because Labor has loosened the migration settings. If National gets into power, they will loosen it even more. And one of the key things to learn in this interview is that we have a problem in that we want councils to provide space for lots of new housing and we want them to plan for it. But politicians from both sides are not saying to councils or the public or getting permission from the public to have fast growth, to have a big New Zealand. Chris Bishop is keen on a big New Zealand and wants us to build for it. The problem is he hasn't really, I think, built the infrastructure or the funding tools to deal with it. And we don't actually have a number on how big Chris Bishop's big New Zealand will be this week on When the Facts Change. Welcome to uh, Chris Bishop, who is the National Party's housing spokesman to Win the Facts Change. Chris, it's lovely to see and hear you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Bernard. Uh, It's been a a really busy old uh, week or two on the housing front. Um, But just before we dive into, you know, the policy here and there, can you step back a bit and say, what is the problem we've got to solve on housing? Well, housing in New Zealand has been a public policy disaster for the last 30 years or so. Uh, and somehow we've managed to create a planning and funding system where we have basically the most ha- expensive houses in the developed world by, by any kind of metric you choose to measure it, whether it's household income to uh, house price, uh, the ratio, or um, housing costs, rents, interest as a uh, proportion of disposable income. We've just let it get completely out of control. So the average house in Auckland's a million bucks. And the really frustrating thing from my point of view is that we're not a small country. We're five you know, 5 million or so people um, on a country the size of Great Britain. But our planning system has just constrained our cities from growing. And that has had enormous uh, implications for almost every facet of New Zealand society. One of the things I am uh, I always say to people, if you really want to understand housing, there's a, a thing called uh, the housing theory of everything, which is on a website called the Works in Progress, uh, which I found incredibly compelling. It just makes the case for housing being the root source of so many problems in society. And, you know, just to pull out a few things, I mean, um, fiscally uh, for the government, uh, the government spends $4 billion a year on housing subsidies. Once you add up the income-related rents, accommodation supplement, emergency housing, that's $4 billion a year in operational funding that isn't spent on the health system, isn't spent on the education system. It's just money um, funding uh, the housing system, and it's uh, grossly unproductive. Uh, productivity, the, the New Zealand disease, we've got very low productivity growth, and that's partly because our cities can't grow. We need bigger cities. We need more dense and urban cities. 
uh, in which you get agglomeration benefits of people living and working together and um, creating innovations and um, driving uh, higher productivity in our, in our cities. Uh, and, of course, there's the moral case for housing as well. The fifth biggest bank in New Zealand is the Bank of Mum and Dad. It's just very difficult for young Kiwis to get into the housing ladder and create a, a property-owning democracy, which, of course, is uh, very important to the National Party. So whether you look at things morally or fiscally or intergenerationally, uh, socially, uh, and I haven't even touched on the catastrophe that is emergency housing. I mean, we're a first-world country. 25,000 people are in severe and urgent need of housing. You can't get it. 3,500 families live in motels uh, in a first-world country like New Zealand. And, of course, at the very sharp end of it, you end up with human tragedies like Loafers Lodge uh, in Wellington. And, um, yep, there's some issues there around uh, fire, um, lack of fire um, protection in, in that building. But the underlying question is why were people having to live in those sort of conditions in the first place? And that is a, a function of our housing market. So how do we increase the supply of housing in the right place so that people aren't having to drive, you know, two or three hours a day to work and maybe burn some petrol? And how do we do it so that, you know, it's we actually get back to something like affordable? Well, what we need to do, I think, is create what economists call competitive urban land markets. The problem we've got in New Zealand is that we've drawn rings around our cities and said you can build inside the ring and you can't build outside the ring. And the net effect of that is to drive up uh, land prices. And those land prices are artificially inflated by fiat, by government fiat, by, by, by planning restrictions. Um, they're not natural uh, restrictions. They're artificial. They're created by government. And worked by the Infrastructure Commission just recently, actually, but it goes back even further than that, Productivity Commission and Treasury as well, shows that average square metre of land inside the urban boundary in Auckland, for example, is $1,300 a square metre more than land outside the boundary. That's just an artificial artificial um, value that is, that is captured by, by land bankers and by developers. So we have to smash those limits, smash those restrictions, um, and drive down the price of land and make it easier to build uh, and um, that, that is a big driver of housing unaffordability because those restrictions on land uh, and, and the value created through land prices suffuse themselves through into the rest of the market and drive up price for everybody else. But isn't it the case that councils and the government actually secretly quite like the metropolitan urban limit and these limits, so then they can blame it and not have to invest huge amounts of money in the infrastructure to enable these bits of land to actually have houses on them? Because you can zone things for residential, but if it's got none of the infrastructure, it's sort of pointless. Yeah, so we do need to invest more in infrastructure, and I think there's two ways to think about it. The first is that growth should pay for growth, so the beneficiaries of new housing should pay for that infrastructure required to unlock that land, and that's why as part of our housing policy, we've said that new greenfields development can't be cross-subsidised by existing ratepayers which drives them nuts um, and also means that essentially you're subsidising Greenfield's development. So we're saying um, you've got to do infrastructure funding tools, special purpose vehicles through the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act, for example, that mean that new, new ratepayers, so new residents, will pay for the sort of, you know, the roads and the wastewater and, and all that stuff to, to unlock the housing. So that, I think, deals with a lot of the constraints. And then in terms of central government, they clearly have a role as well. And... Um, this is probably where we differ a bit from the Greens and possibly Labor as well, is that you know we are up for building projects like State Highway 29, for example, and other state highways that do unlock vast amounts of new 
housing, um, but we're prepared to use value capture tools to help pay for those roads. So, you know, for example, the government builds a new state highway with public money, taxpayer money, or in relation to state highways, it's normally road users' money. Um, obviously, landowners for whom that road connects get enormous uplift in value of their land because of that. Well, our view is that that's private gain and they should be um, levied and help pay for the road that is being built for them. Otherwise, you get private gains and social and socialised costs. And, um, you know, that's a, a pretty basic principle. Again, this is not a sort of new phenomenon in comparison to international terms. I mean, other countries do this for, for both roads, but also public transport projects and mass rapid transit. And I think it's something we need to introduce here. So uh, let's go through those funding tools, which, as you, as you say, try to load up the extra cost of infrastructure onto the marginal buyer. And you can do it with development contributions, which in Auckland, Upper Drury, seem to be headed towards $200,000 per dwelling unit. And or you can do it with targeted rates to fund some sort of um, separate borrowing vehicle and that has the effect of effectively reducing the land price because um, when you put the extra cost per year of these rates, if you like, onto it, it reduces the land price. And you can fund it with, as you say, the value capture. But just looking at all three of those, so let's go development contributions, which, you know, they've been rising and, and that has increased the cost of new housing. Aren't you actually... By, by putting all the cost onto the marginal buyer, increasing the cost of housing, even when you take into account the potential for a lower land price with value capture. And when you increase the price of the new marginal house, you actually increase the price of all houses. Uh, well, I guess what I would say to you is that um, the, the big, and the Treasury work recently released at the end of last year, shows that the big driver of house prices in the last um, 20 years or so has been land. It's building costs, yep, to some extent. Inflation generally, yep, but it's actually land. And um, we need to create abundant development opportunities in the market and let uh, let prices, uh, you know, let, have proper pricing of housing um, and not have artificially inflated prices because of land constraints. And so essentially we're going to let the economics do the work here and it will be the case that some greenfields development is uneconomic. And, and this is what we're saying, is that we're not going to cross-subsidise that greenfields development. We're going to let development take its course. Um, my Our expectation is that you will see a mixture of a bit of greenfield stuff um, where it makes sense, and you will also see uh, more density in our, um, in our cities around uh, transit corridors, for example. And we're going to double down on density around um, transit corridors, so, so busways and... Um, Projects like the City Rail Link, for example, and there, you know, obviously the government's talking about other projects as well. So, Northwestern Busway is another example. So, um, essentially, you know, markets, you know, we've got to trust the market here. Markets will work out where the best place to develop is. It's just if you price things properly, you've got a much better chance of getting that in the right place. But isn't the market also um, designed to build? expensive houses on expensive bits of land and people want to buy expensive houses on expensive pieces of land because they can rely on the price of the land continuing to rise and by allowing the market only to do it you end up with lots of you know 1.5 million dollar mansions and not many affordable one two bedroomed homes that regular people can buy 
I mean, all supply into the market is good. So I, I sort of reject the idea that just because someone builds a million dollar house, that's a, you know necessarily a bad thing. Which you, I'm not saying you're saying, but sometimes people do say, "Oh, well, all we're going to get is the four you know million dollar homes." Um, all supply into the market is good by sort of definition. So that's fine. But we do need uh, we do need a range of typologies and a range of a price um, pricing across the housing continuum and, and we haven't announced our plans around social housing yet but we do need to do more with community and social houses um, but, but my overall point would be affordability for everyone if we implement our plan properly over time uh, will be better because we're going to drive down land prices and we're going to um, create abundant opportunities to create affordable housing and if you look at a place like Texas for example I was asked on Q&A about you know where affordable housing is I mean it's you know three and a half to four to one they do a similar system to what we're doing, which is um, internalise the infrastructure costs for new uh, development, but you have abundant opportunities in the market, and they have a bit of sprawl, but they also do density uh, as well. So, you know, this, this, these are ideas that Phil Twyford, by the way, used to talk about in 2017. Um, he promised to smash the metropolitan urban limit. He talked about competitive urban land markets and talked about abundant development opportunities. And somewhere along the line, he lost his nerve or, you know, he got sacked or whatever, and it never happened. But isn't the problem here that you're essentially going back to that same old uh, treasury uh, recipe of creating land markets and allowing the infrastructure funding to come from the private sector mostly, when that clearly hasn't worked? The Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act has um, failed. Uh, there's one deal that's gone through, and it only happened because there were government-appointed commissioners there. When you look at the need for infrastructure funding, councils go out of their way not to do it because they don't or can't borrow more money, and the government won't match it. If you look at the need for infrastructure funding, it's for a couple of hundred billion dollars to deal with the population growth we've got. Your um, fund of a billion dollars actually comes by taking money off infrastructure funds elsewhere that hasn't been spent. So you've got a net infrastructure grant, if you like, or funds from the government of naught to deal with a $200 billion issue. How on earth are you going to get houses built okay. when the, gov the government is not contributing to well, it? Well, there's a, there's a lot there. So let me, let me run through that. So, so firstly, um, we've got to get councils. So there's a lot there. So we've got to get councils going for growth. That's very important. And that's why we've set up the billion-dollar build for growth fund. What we've got to do, Bernard, is change the political calculus in councils away from hostility to growth at, at the worst level to ambivalence at best. We've got to get them changed from that into, yep, we want more houses because housing's good. And the way in which we do that is financially by saying for every house you build above or allow to be built above the long-term average over the last five years, we'll give you 25 grand. That's free money, uh, and that's gone down very well with councils. So I think that will make a difference over time in terms of encouraging councils to go for growth. In terms of the infrastructure deficit, you're completely right. Look, estimates vary, 160, 200, no one's really going to argue we have one. Now, that's going to require the Crown to step up and local government to step up. And I think here's the difference between us and the Labor Party. We're much more open to the use of private capital to close that deficit. If you look at some of the markets um, in New Zealand where uh, that, are, that are working properly uh, in terms of infrastructure funding, you know, you think about the airport sector, electricity, for example, the lines companies, Yep, there's a bit of government ownership there, but there's also a lot of private capital in there. You know, just think about the performance of Wellington Airport after it was um, privatised um, in uh, the 1990s. Um, it, it's performed a lot better. So I'm not saying we're going on a mass privatisation um, streak or anything like that. I'm just making the point that private capital um, can help us meet our infrastructure deficit 
uh, needs, and we are much more open to that, and we'll have more to say about infrastructure funding um, from a Crown point of view um, in due course. Uh, but the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act, just on that point, yeah, it hasn't worked as well as um, we anticipated. I mean, that, that work started under the last national government, um, passed under Labor, um, but there's a lot of red tape involved um, in, in the administration of that act, and that's one of the things we've, we've put in our policy is to reduce the red tape, uh, make it easier to use, uh, have a single point of contact for the Crown and just get on with it. And so a bit complicated, but we do need to make that work. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25-26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Now, one of the parts of the National Party policy you've announced is the idea of setting growth targets for councils, saying you have to ensure there's enough residential zoned land for 30 years' worth of growth. How fast do you think New Zealand's population should grow and therefore how much housing growth should we have? Well, I'm not one of these people who says that we should, you know, try and have a population policy and, you know, try and constrain New Zealand. I mean, as, as a general starting point, I think growth is good. I think more people is good. I, I want us to be a bigger country because bigger countries are more productive. They have more economic growth, uh, and and they're more desirable places to live. And fundamentally, I mean, you know, countries that are growing are doing something good. They're, they're successful in the same way that cities growing uh, are good because it means that people want to live there and, and not move. Uh, so I think fundamentally that, that should be the starting point. Um, the, the question is just creating planning systems and infrastructure systems that facilitate and don't hold back that growth. And we should go for growth. That's, that's what our whole policy um, is all about. So um, we've said, look, you've got to create abundant opportunities. And the 30-year uh, dumping of, of land capacity into the market is, del- is deliberately designed to do that. So if you, weigh the, if you think about the way the national policy statement currently works is councils have to do short, medium and long-term 
demand forecast for their cities. Now, I've had a look through many of them. Some of them are better than others. Some councils have kind of actually not really done what they're required by the policy statements. Um, so that's why we've given ourselves the reserve powers in central government. If we if we win the election and have a mandate for it, we will um, essentially, you know, we, we give councils a go at it, but if they don't do it properly, we'll do it for them. Um, and they, they will have to make land capacity available in the short term. But how can they plan for a certain level of capacity if you won't say to them, we think we should have 1% population growth over the next 20 or 30 years or 2%? Because what we've seen in the last 30 years, and particularly the last 20 years, is we've had population growth of 15 to 2% on top of infrastructure that was planned and built when everyone assumed we'd have no growth or at best 0.5% growth. And when you look at the councils that have done planning, they have assumed 0.5% population growth. And that is way lower than what we've actually seen and what we're seeing right now, which is over 2%. So how can councils realistically plan and get it right if you can't say to them, well, actually, I want a big New Zealand or a small one, here's what we are going to go for, 1%. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, um, uh, uh, changing the population <laughs> through other means than migration. And it is tough to predict migration, you know, month to month, year to year. But you do have some levers with migration. So how, how come you can't say, okay, guys, it's going to be one and a half, or it's going to be 2%? Well, I think you've put your, your finger on exactly why, you know, I... I can't. In fact, no one can. So it's not it's not that I'm incompetent. It's just that it's bloody hard to do. So, you know, and, and I, you know, if you go back through the through the books, I mean, we go all the way back to the 1970s. You know, we had the planning commission and all this sort of stuff, and in the, the 1980s as well. I mean, there've been various unsuccessful attempts to you know plan and forecast New Zealand and what the growth will be and all the rest of it. Um, by definition, policymakers don't have a particularly good handle on all of it because you've got New Zealand citizens have a right to return to New Zealand. Um, and so that's impossible, you know, difficult to predict. Um, we do have some levers, but we don't have that many levers. And ultimately, you know, um, the country is going to grow. And so I suppose what I'm saying to you is our bias will be in favour of um, population growth. Our bias will be in favour of planning for quite a lot of growth because the New Zealand uh, problem over the last few years is we haven't um, planned for enough growth and we haven't got a functional funding system for infrastructure or a planning system for housing uh, to, to facilitate and allow for that growth. And the result is in plain sight. The results are, as I've talked about, a disaster economically and socially in housing in New Zealand and also a massive infrastructure deficit. So we've got to do a complete um, revolution in the way in which we think about these issues and have a bias towards growth, a bias towards a bigger New Zealand, uh, and finally get on top of these problems that have bedeviled New Zealand for way too long. And we can solve infrastructure funding and solve the housing market, we will be a wealthier, more prosperous country. And that is precisely what New Zealanders are calling out for because we've got a health system in crisis and we've got an education system that can't teach our kids. Um, and, you know, we, we, we are materially less wealthy than places like Australia and other places um, because of our productivity problems. And so this, this is very much linked to our wider economic plan about growing New Zealand. So... We need to build lots of new houses for a big New Zealand. Um, you'd like to see some greenfield, but also some brownfield. We know that the greenfield is more expensive 
per house for infrastructure simply because it's a long way from the centre. You're probably going to have to build a new motorway or a railway or something. So um, why not do or focus it as much as possible on brownfields? And in particular, not just along the routes or the railway stations, but in those leafy suburbs where the medium density residential standards um, would have allowed a significant amount of uh, uh, housing growth. And according to the PWC Sense Partners um, survey, enough to significantly reduce house price growth. Yeah, so we are interested in more brownfields growth. And um, one of the parts of the policy we released that hasn't had a lot of attention um, was uh, a, a sort of little reference there to urban development authorities. Um, so we'll have more to say about that in due course. Um, but I do think there is a role for central government to kind of coordinate more brownfields development um, around transit corridors in particular. So we'll have more to say about that in due course. And one of the things we are interested in as well is mixed-use zoning. So, um, you know, I've, I've become quite a, a supporter of, of, you know, essentially leisure and commercial and re residential and retail opportunities all existing together. This this sort of planning idea that you sort of live in one place and you, you know, work in another and you've got your commercial and industrial place in another part of the city um, is just, you know, it's just completely artificial. It's not how, you know, most people live their lives actually. Um, and so mixed-use zoning, we are going to make mandatory around um, the NPSUD catchment areas, and I think that will be a big step forward as well. But we'll have more to say about brownfields development um, soon. So why why did uh, National decide to drop the you know three three story homes um, built as of right, no resource consent needed on uh, regular suburban uh, sections? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think instead of being reported as you know. It's three by three as of right. That that's not entirely true. There were quite a lot of restrictions actually about where and what you could build. You had to have fifty percent site coverage and things like and set various setback rules and things like that. But but basically, we we are saying that councils wanted more discretion and flexibility as to how they implemented um, density, and so we are going to give them that. But what we're not saying is that you can just give up on growth. So we've put very um, strong powers for central government to step in there and rezone land if they don't do it. Um, and, you know, we're going to let councils have more discretion and flexibility about how they grow their cities. Um, and if they want to do their medium density residential zones, um, they can. And, you know, our expectation is that some councils will still do it. But if they want to opt out as parts of the city, then they can do that as well. Just finally, the um, uh, those people who opposed MDRS, the various um, residents' associations, particularly in Auckland and Christchurch, have come out the last day and said, um, yep, it's good that this is being dropped. Now we want the whole thing to be dropped and we want to have a look at NPSUD, which we think um, allows too much densification and is too much about um, public transport and stopping parking and stopping cars. We want to change that. And we also want to block greenfields developments because it's too expensive for infrastructure and we as ratepayers don't want to pay for it. Mm. What, what's, what's to stop councils going, right, we won't allow greenfields because it's too expensive and we don't want to borrow and also we don't want to um, increase our rates. And secondly, we don't want to do densification because that aggravates those people uh, close to town who are the ones who vote for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to say to Chris or whoever's the housing minister at the time, yeah, yeah, we'll do all this. You know, we love it. It's great. And then just not do it. And by the time you get a chance to prove it, um, 
uh, the horse is bolted again. Because sort of we've seen this before, you know, with Nick Smith and the special housing areas and uh, Labor have done this as well, where, you know, there's a lot of stick waving but no sharing of money and the councils just um, smirk and, and sit down and do nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, we're trying to change the incentives on council so you don't get these absurd situations like senior planners in Auckland saying that, you know, dairies aren't allowed to be demolished to put a townhouse on or something like that, which was in the media this morning again. Um, and, you know, the only way ultimately to change that is to change the incentives on councils, and that's why our Build for Growth Fund exists. But, I mean, you are right. I mean, it is intensely frustrating. I mean, I saw someone um, in the media yesterday saying, um, well, it's good you've got rid of the medium density residential zones, um, but Greenfields is a disaster. And it's like, well, okay, so on the one hand, you can't do density in some suburbs, but you also can't do greenfields. I mean, what, I mean, li like, literally, what do you do? Because we have to build more houses. So the immediate pivot was away from density, and, and then the conversation immediately shifted to greenfields. Um, and I had, you know, a couple of councils have said, oh, it's <laughs> a couple of councils submitted to the parliament against the medium density residential zone saying, oh, we need to, some flexibility and discretion. Um, well, our policy is now to do that, and now they're criticising us for creating uncertainty. It is somewhat frustrating, but look, that's politics, and um, that's the messy process, as you know, Bernard, of public policy. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of what we put on the table, and I think it's an ambitious programme for reform, and, um, you know, we'll seek a mandate for it at the election. Great. Um, Chris, we'd love to come back to you and talk about that social housing policy when you come out with it. Happy and um, no doubt there'll be more areas before the election where people who care about and think about housing uh, and interest rates uh, and the climate um, cross over into those areas. Chris Bishop, uh, the housing spokesperson for the National Party, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks very much. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.